0: Section 3 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard Section 3. George Washington, Part 2 we do not know much of washington's father if he exerted any special influence on his children we do not know it he died when george was eleven years old and the boy then went to live at the hunting creek place with his half-brother lawrence that he might attend school lawrence had served in the english navy under admiral vernon and in honour of his chief changed the name of his home and called it mount vernon mount vernon then consisted of twenty-five hundred acres mostly a tangle of forest, with a small house and log stables. The tract had descended to Lawrence from his father, with provision that it should fall to George if Lawrence died without issue. Lawrence married, and when he died, aged thirty-two, he left a daughter, Mildred, who died two years later. Mount Vernon then passed to George Washington, aged twenty-one, but not without a protest from the widow of Lawrence, who evidently was paid not to take the matter into the courts. Washington owned Mount Vernon for 46 years, just one half of which time was given to the service of his country. It was the only place he ever called home, and there he sleeps. When Washington was 14, his school days were over. Of his youth, we know but little. He was not precocious, although physically he developed early. But there was no reason why the neighbors should keep tab on him and record anecdotes. They had boys of their own, just as promising. He was tall and slender, long-armed with large bony hands and feet, very strong, a daring horseman, a good wrestler, and, living on the banks of a river, he became, as all healthy boys must, a good swimmer. His mission among the Indians in his twenty-first year was largely successful through the personal admiration he excited among the savages. In poise he was equal to their best, and ever being a bit proud, even if not vain, he dressed for the occasion in full Indian regalia, minus only the war paint. The Indians at once recognized his nobility, and named him Conor Tankarius, plunderer of villages, and suggested that he take to wife an Indian maiden and remain with them as chief. When he returned home, he wrote to the Indian agent, announcing his safe arrival, and sending greetings to the Indians. Tell them he says, how happy it would make Conotancarias to see them and take them by the hand. His wish was gratified for the Indians took him at his word, and fifty of them came to him, saying, quote, "Since you could not come and live with us, we have come to live with you. End quote. They camped on the green in front of the residence and proceeded to inspect every room in the house, tested all the whiskey they could find appropriated eatables, and were only induced to depart after all the bedclothes had been dyed red and a blanket or a quilt presented to each. Throughout his life, Washington had a very tender spot in his heart for women. At sixteen, he writes with all a youth's solemnity of, quote, a hurt of the heart uncurable, end quote, and from that time forward there is ever some fair maid to be seen in the shadow. In fact, Washington got along with women much better than with men. With men he was often diffident and awkward, illy concealing his uneasiness behind a forced dignity. But he knew that women admired him, and with them he was at ease. When he made that first Western trip, carrying a message to the French, he turns aside to call on the Indian princess Aligippa. In his journal he says, quote, "'Presented her a blanket and a bottle of rum,' Which latter was thought the much best present of the two. End quote. In his expense account, we find items like these: quote, treating the ladies two shillings, present for Polly five shillings, my share for music at the dance three shillings, lost at loo five shillings. End quote. In fact, like most Episcopalians, Washington danced and played cards. His favorite game seems to have been loo, and he generally played for small stakes and when playing with the ladies usually lost whether purposely or because otherwise absorbed we know not in seventeen hundred fifty six he made a horseback journey on military business to boston stopping a week going and on the way back at new york he spent the time at the house of a former virginian beverly robinson who had married susanna phillips daughter of frederick phillips one of the rich men of manhattan in the household was a young woman mary phillips sister of the hostess She was older than Washington, educated, and had seen much more of polite life than he. The tall, young Virginian, fresh from the frontier, where he had had horses shot under him, excited the interest of Mary Phillips, and Washington, innocent but ardent, mistook this natural curiosity for a softer sentiment, and proposed on the spot. As soon as the lady got her breath, he was let down very gently. Two years afterwards, Mary Phillips married Colonel Roger Morris in the King's service, and carts were duly sent to Mount Vernon. But the Wurligig of time equalizes all things, and in 1776, General Washington, commander of the Continental Army, occupied the mansion of Colonel Morris, the colonel and his lady being fugitive Tories. In his diary, Washington records this significant item. dined at the house lately Colonel Roger Morris confiscated and the occupation of a common farmer Washington always attributed his defeat at the hands of Mary Phillips to being too precipitate and not waiting until ye lady was in ye mood but two years later we find him being even more hasty and this time with success which proves that all signs fail in dry weather and some things are possible as well as others He was on his way to Williamsburg to consult physicians and stopped at the residence of Mrs. Daniel Park Custis to make a short call, was pressed to remain to tea, did so, proposed marriage and was graciously accepted. We have a beautiful steel engraving that immortalizes this visit, showing Washington's horse impatiently waiting at the door. Mrs. Custis was a widow with two children. She was twenty-six and the same age as Washington within three months. Her husband had died seven months before. In Washington's cash account for May, 1758, is an item, quote, One engagement ring, two pounds, sixteen shillings, quote. The happy couple were married eight months later, and we find Mrs. Washington explaining to a friend that her reason for the somewhat hasty union was that her estate was getting in a bad way and a man was needed to look after it our actions are usually right but the reasons we give seldom are but in this case no doubt a man was needed for the widow had much property and we cannot but congratulate martha Custis on her choice of a man she owned fifteen thousand acres of land many lots in the city of williamsburg two hundred negroes and some money on bond all the property being worth over one hundred thousand dollars a very large amount for those days Directly after the wedding, the couple moved to Mount Vernon, taking a good many of the slaves with them. Shortly after, arrangements were underway to rebuild the house, and the plans that finally developed into the present mansion were begun. Washington's letters and diary contain very few references to his wife, and none of the many visitors to Mount Vernon took pains to testify either to her wit or to her intellect. We know that the housekeeping at Mount Vernon proved too much for her ability, and that a woman was hired to oversee the household. And in this reference, a complaint is found from the General that, quote, Housekeeper has done gone, and left things in confusion, quote. He had his troubles. Martha's education was not equal to writing a presentable letter, for we find that her husband wrote the first draft of all important missives that it was necessary for her to send, and she copied them even to his mistakes in spelling. Very patient was he about this, and even when he was president and harried constantly, we find him stopping to acknowledge for her, quote, an invitation to take some tea, quote, and at the bottom of the sheet adding a pious bit of finesse thus, quote, the president requests me to send his compliments and only regrets that the pressure of affairs compels him to forego the pleasure of seeing you, end quote. After Washington's death, his wife destroyed the letters he had written her, many hundred in number, an offense the world is not yet quite willing to forget, even though it has forgiven. Although we have been told that when Washington was six years old he could not tell a lie, yet he afterwards partially overcame the disability. On one occasion he writes to a friend that the mosquitoes of New Jersey, quote, can bite through the thickest boot, end quote and though a contemporary clergyman, greatly flurried, explains that he meant stalking, we insist that the statement shall stand as the father of his country expressed it. Washington also records, without a blush, quote, I announced that I would leave at eight, and then immediately gave private orders to go at five, so to avoid the throng. Quote. Another time, when he discharged an overseer for incompetency, he lessened the pain of parting by writing for the fellow quote, a character. End quote. When he went to Boston and was named as commander of the army, his chief concern seemed to be how he would make peace with Martha. Ho, oh, ye married men, do you understand the situation? He was to be away for a year, two, or possibly three, and his wife did not have an inkling of it. Now he must break the news to her. As plainly shown by Cabot Lodge and other historians, there was much rivalry for the office, and it was only allotted to the South as a political deal after much bickering. Washington had been a passive but very willing candidate, and after a struggle his friend secured him the prize. And now what to do with Martha? Writing to her, among other things, he says, quote, You may believe me, my dear Patsy, when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking the appointment I have done all in my power to avoid it. End quote. The man who will not fabricate a bit in order to keep peace with a wife of his bosom is not much of a man. But Patsy's objections were overcome, and beyond a few chidings and sundry complainings, she did nothing to block the great game of war. At Princeton, Washington ordered campfires to be built along the brow of a hill for a mile, and when the fires were well lighted, he withdrew his army, marched round to the other side, and surprised the enemy at daylight. At Brooklyn, he used massed batteries and presented a fierce row of round black spots painted on canvas, that, from the city, looked like mouths of cannon at which men seek the bauble reputation. It is said he also sent a note threatening to fire these sham cannon, on receiving which the enemy hastily moved beyond range. Perceiving afterwards that they had been imposed upon, the brave English sent word to, quote, shoot and be damned, end quote. Evidently, Washington considered that all things are fair in love and war. Washington talked but a little, and his usual air was one of melancholy that stopped just short of sadness. All this, with the firmness of his features and the dignity of his carriage, gave the impression of sternness and severity, and these things gave rise to the popular conception that he had small sense of humour, yet he surely was fond of a quiet smile. At one time, Congress insisted that a standing army of five thousand men was too large. Washington replied that if England would agree never to invade this country with more than three thousand men, he would be perfectly willing that our army should be reduced to four thousand. When the King of Spain, knowing he was a farmer, thoughtfully sent him a present of a jackass, Washington proposed naming the animal in honour of the donor, and in writing to friends about the present, draws invidious comparisons between the gift and the giver. Evidently the joke pleased him, for he repeats it in different letters thus showing how when he sat down to clear his desk of correspondence he economized energy by following a form so we now find letters that are almost identical even to jokes sent to persons in south carolina and in massachusetts doubtless the good man thought they would never be compared for how could he foresee that an autograph dealer in new york would eventually catalogue them at twenty-two dollars fifty cents each or that a very proper but half-affectionate missive of his to a fair lady, would be sold by her great-granddaughter for fifty dollars. In 1793 there were on the Mount Vernon plantation three hundred seventy head of cattle, and Washington appends to the report a sad regret that, with all this number of horned beasts, he yet has to buy butter. There is also a fine grim humour shown in the incident of a flag of truce coming in at New York bearing the message from General addressed to, quote, Mr. Washington, end quote. The general took the letter from the hand of the red coat, glanced at the superscription, and said, quote, Why, this letter is not for me. It is directed to a planter in Virginia. I'll keep it and give it to him at the end of the war, end quote. Then, cramming the letter into his pocket, he ordered the flag of truce out of the lines and directed the gunners to stand by. In an hour, another letter came back addressed to, Quote, "...His Excellency General Washington." End quote. It was not long after this, a soldier brought to Washington a dog that had been found wearing a collar with the name of General Ho in on it. Washington returned the dog by a special messenger with a note reading, quote, "...General Washington sends his compliments to General Ho and begs to return one dog that evidently belongs to him." In this instance, I am inclined to think that Washington acted in sober good faith but was the victim of a practical joke on the part of one of his aides. Another remark that sounds like a joke, but perhaps was not one, was when, on taking command of the army at Boston, the general writes to his lifelong friend, Dr. Craig, asking what he can do for him, and adding a sentiment still in the air, quote, But these Massachusetts people suffer nothing to go by them that they can lay their hands on, end quote. In another letter, he pays his compliments to Connecticut thus, Quote, their impecunious meanness surpasses belief. End quote. When Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, Washington refused to humiliate him and his officers by accepting their swords. He treated Cornwallis as his guest and even quote, gave a dinner in his honor. End quote. At this dinner, Rochambeau, being asked for a toast, gave the United States. Washington proposed the King of France. Cornwallis merely gave the King and Washington, putting the toast, expressed it, as Cornwallis intended, the King of England, and added a sentiment of his own that made even Cornwallis laugh, quote, May he stay there, end quote. Washington's treatment of Cornwallis made him a lifelong friend. Many years later, when Cornwallis was Governor-General of India, he sent a message to his old antagonist, wishing him prosperity and enjoyment, and adding, As for myself, I am yet in troubled waters. Once in a century, possibly, a being is born, who possesses a transcendent insight, and him we call a genius. Shakespeare, for instance, to whom all knowledge lay open, Joan of Arc, the artist Turner, Swedenborg, the mystic, these are the men who know a royal road to geometry. But we may safely leave them out of account when we deal with the builders of a state, for among statesmen there are no geniuses nobody knows just what a genius is or what he may do next. He boils at an unknown temperature and often explodes at a touch. He is uncertain and therefore unsafe. His best results are conjured forth, but no man has yet conjured forth a nation. It is all slow, patient, painstaking work along mathematical lines. Washington was a mathematician and therefore not a genius. We call him a great man, but his greatness was of that sort in which we all can share. His virtues were of a kind that, in degree, we too may possess. Any man who succeeds in a legitimate business works with the same tools that Washington used. Washington was human. We know the man, we understand him, we comprehend how he succeeded, for with him there were no tricks, no legitimate, no secrets. He is very near to us. Washington is indeed first in the hearts of his countrymen. Washington has no detractors. There may come a time when another will take first place in the affections of the people, but that time is not yet ripe. Lincoln stood between men who now live and the prices they coveted. Thousands still tread the earth whom he benefited, and neither class can forgive, for they are of clay. But all those who lived when Washington lived are gone. Not one survives, even the last body servant, who confused memory with hearsay, has departed babbling to his rest we know all of washington we will ever know there are no more documents to present no partisan witnesses to examine no prejudices to remove his purity of purpose stands unimpeached his steadfast earnestness and sterling honesty are a priceless examples we love the man we call him father end of section 3